Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hello. This is Simon Brew. I'm the editor of Film Stories. And how about we do a podcast? Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies. Movies that have stories. The story just sucks them in. This is just the beginning. We would be honoured if you would join us. Hello and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew, as always, there's absolutely everything you need to know about me. The aim of the podcast, though, title gives it away. I'm here to talk of the stories of film and I tend to talk about development stories, production stories, marketing stories, release stories, uh, all the bits and bobs, really, that go to make the films that we know and sometimes love just that, the films that we know and sometimes love. The films I tend to cover on this podcast, they have more of a mainstream leaning to them than anything else. They're films I'm interested in or invested in to some degree. I try not to punch down. I try not to do snark. I'm just celebrating the fact that films are made, people get to make them, and people are able to push these metaphorical boulders up the hill. Without further ado, I'm going to crack on with the first of the two films I'm talking about in this episode of the podcast. We're going to go back to 1994. I'll play you a clip. I'll come to the story, the other side of this. I'll, I'll see your bet and uh, I'll call. I'm running low on chips here. Two pair of ace of a queen. Oh, lucky thing for me, I had three sixes. Sorry. Looks like you broke your losing streak. Nice pot. I don't see what's so great about it. Whoa, hey, where's the fire, son? I'm a gambler, you're a gunfighter. The fact of the matter is, if I'd have tried to face you down, I mean, what chance would I have had? Absolute zero. None, whatever. Was that fast? Wanna see it again? Mel Gibson. Damn thing won't stay in a holster. <laughs> Whoop! Jodie Foster. The silly looking creature's called Maverick, and, and my name is Annabelle Bransford. I'll be taking the stage. So am I. So am I. James Garner. You can relax and enjoy the journey now. Maverick. Don't worry. Nothing to worry about. I got it all under control. Yeah, well, I remember my first runaway stage. <laughs> That, then, is a clip from the trailer of 1994's Maverick, directed by Richard Donner. The screenplay for this one by William Goldman, based on the TV series Maverick by Roy Huggins, who was credited on screen for the first time in the movie version. Um, Starring Mel Gibson, Jodie Foster, James Garner, Graham Greene, James Coburn and Alfred Molina. And, I mean, the early 1990s was a time where Hollywood really wasn't shy about taking old TV shows and adapting them for the big screen. I mean, already on this podcast in the past, I've looked at things like Mission Impossible and The Fugitive. And it was in this era, too, when the Western was coming back into vogue, albeit temporarily in Hollywood, off the back of two pictures. There was 1990s Dances of Wolves, starring and directed by Kevin Costner. And there was 1992's Unforgiven, starring and directed by Clint Eastwood. Now, crucially, both of those had grossed over $100 million at the American box office. And also, just to ice the cake somewhat, both had won Best Picture Academy Awards as well. It was the it was the commercial viability of the Western, really, that was the thing that opened Hollywood's eyes again. And it, it led to a whole host of Westerns suddenly galloping towards the big screen. Now, the TV series Maverick, that really, I mean, there'd been the odd mumbling of that getting some kind of revival or a film version. But I, I mean, the series had been off screen for a long time. It started in 1957. It starred James Garner in the title role and it ran for five years. But it wasn't until really the early 1990s that Mel Gibson's Icon Entertainment Company and in turn Warner Brothers, where he housed the offices, looked at a possible movie version. Now, other films that were going, I, I mean, the Flintstones was going into production around the time Maverick did. 
Um, and it was Icon, it was Gibson and Icon, really, who who were the ones to put the foot down a little bit on this one. And it was Gibson who came up with the idea of why not get the writer of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, the legendary Hollywood screenwriter William Goldman, to pen the screenplay. And Warner Brothers, inevitably, you're thinking Mel Gibson, and they, they would pair him with Richard Donner, with whom he'd made Lethal Weapon, three Lethal Weapon films. And, and so this seemed like a fairly obvious project to pull together. But there were some things going on in the background. So uh, Richard Donner, for instance, was trying to get another film off the ground. He was trying to make a film called The Witching Hour that would have starred Michelle Pfeiffer, but it didn't happen and she didn't star in the film that didn't happen. But also Mel Gibson had his eye on another Western as well, that he'd been developing a film again through his icon company, but also in conjunction with Carol Co., the huge, com- the, the, the huge indie behind the likes of Terminator 2, and, and Total Recall and Basic Instinct. And Carol Coe was interested in that. But Carol Coe was also hitting financial problems. The film would have been called Renegade. It would have starred Julia Roberts and Mel Gibson together for the first time. But that started to fall apart. And in fact, Roberts and Gibson would have to wait to star together in a film. It would be the movie Conspiracy Theory, which, ironically enough, would be directed by Richard Donner. That would follow a few years later. I've covered that again in a previous episode of the podcast. But for the purposes of this, it was producer Bruce Davey, who worked with Gibson at Icon and also used to be Gibson's accountant, who ultimately first mooted the idea to Mel Gibson of doing Maverick. What's more, Gibson, as you probably gleaned by now, was certainly interested. He brought with him his Icon production company and he also brought with him the deal that he got with Warner Brothers. And Warner Brothers was interested too. And why wouldn't it be? At that stage, Mel Gibson was one of the top four or five stars in the in the world at the box office. But also Warner Brothers was a studio, particularly in the 90s, that prided itself on its relationship with star talent. That it's no coincidence that big names such as Clint Eastwood such as Mel Gibson, such as Richard Donner, kept making their films at Warner Brothers, and it was always seen as a very talent-friendly studio. So Warner Brothers was in, Goldman was in, Mel Gibson was in, and this project was starting to come together with some degree of pace. One thing, though, they were still just trying to get Richard Donner to sign on the dotted line for this one. Now, he he was just coming off the back of working uh, with Mel Gibson on the film Lethal Weapon 3. And once William Goldman had penned his screenplay and dropped it to Mel Gibson, Mel Gibson, as he told Premiere magazine in 1994, went round to Donner's house one Saturday morning and he, he just dropped the script off. Simple as that. Now, Donna had been through the mill a little bit the year before, as successful as Lethal Weapon 3 turned out to be. He'd also done a film called Radio Flyer. Now, Radio Flyer was, I mean, it was a, it was a fairly big budgeted film, but it was certainly less mainstream, dealing with matters of child abuse. And the film really got kicked around by the critics and lost an awful lot of money. And, I mean, Donna talked about this to the Chicago, Chicago Tribune, which gives you an idea of where his head was at the time. He said, I was destroyed by the reaction to that film. He said, you have no idea how it hurts. It tears you up inside and out and it affects your relationships, everything. It could have destroyed me. However, he was tempted by the idea of making another film with his friend Gibson and he was ultimately confirmed in April of 1993 as the director of the Maverick Project. Warner Brothers 2 was clearly fast-tracking this one but there was still a little bit of waiting because Mel Gibson was in the midst of post-production on his directorial debut, a film called The Man Without a Face that was being made as part of his Warner Brothers deal. It was kind of the idea of you, you, do, you do the big films for us and we'll give you the scope to do the small ones. So that was his break into movie directing. But let's go back to William Goldman because William Goldman was a real coup for a project like this and when he put his screenplay together, he built up a core supporting role, the character of Zane Cooper. Now, Warner Brothers had thought originally that the character of Cooper would be someone the same age as Mel Gibson, who was going to take on the role, inevitably, of of Brett Maverick in the film. But Goldman had written the role older. And in fact, older to the point where he sounded out uh, Paul Newman 
see if he was interested. Now, of course, Goldman had written Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and that gave Newman one of his most famous roles. Newman asked to see another draft of the script, and this this particular draft would then weave a bit more of the character of Zane Cooper into the plot. So Goldman obliged with that and put the script together. But then there were demands on Paul Newman's services that he had a collection of films to choose from at this point. It's also worth noting that he was race driving as well at the time, so it all had to fit around that. But the three projects he had to pick from, well, there was a film from an old friend of his, Robert Benton, called Nobody's Fool. There was Maverick. And then there was Roman Polanski's movie, Death and the Maiden, which in which if that had gone ahead, he would have likely co-starred with Meryl Streep. However, in the end, Newman opted to do Nobody's Fool. And you'd have to say it wasn't a bad choice, given that that snagged him a Best Actor Oscar nomination. Death and the Maiden, made, with, uh, made by convicted rapist Roman Polanski, would go on to star Ben Kingsley and Sigourney Weaver instead. And for the purposes of Maverick, this film that was months away from filming... The only main piece of casting that was in place at this stage was Mel Gibson. So in the end, an offer went in to James Garner, who, as we discussed, had played Maverick in the original TV series, to see if he wanted to take on the role of Zane Cooper. Now, this was some turnaround for Garner, because if you go back to the original TV series, he was a contract player at the studio when he took that role on. So it just means he's under contract for the studio, has to do what they say, pretty much at the price that, that they say. And so he estimated in the end he'd been paid nine. $92,000 for five seasons of Maverick. And he talked about this in an interview with Film Review magazine in April, uh, in, in the summer of 1994. Um, he had had to sue Warner Brothers to get out of that TV series. And he successfully sued Warner Brothers. And he, re he regaled the story of how the $92,000 that he'd made for the five seasons of Maverick well, the lawyer to get him out of the contract to make any more cost him $100,000. So basically, he was $8,000 down. Now, there had been a little bit of nervousness, perhaps understandably in the context of that story, about approaching Garner for the film. Because one of the things Donna was conscious of was, well, someone else is playing his famous role in this. Would he be offended by that? Would that put him off? Would he put his back up to some degree? Well, the answer to that was no, it wouldn't. And in fact, they went and met with James Garner. It took one meeting. And by the time that meeting was over, they pretty much decided that he was going to be make, he was going to be given an offer for the film. Garner got home and there you go. There was the offer for him to co-star in the movie. And so that's two of the three core pieces of casting in place. Warner Brothers continued to put this on the fast track. It now had Richard Donner. It had a script by William Goldman. It had Mel Gibson. And and it wanted this to be shooting in the summer of 1993. It was determined to get this project going. The problem, though, was the character of Annabelle, the female lead in the movie. And as, is, as was usually the way with Hollywood at this point, a, a succession of high profile female leads were considered. So Julia Roberts's name was in there. Michelle Pfeiffer's name was in there. But the person who landed the role was Meg Ryan. And she was uh, she was set to sign up to do the film. And that was it. All the core casting in place until on the 10th of August 1993. And this was legitimately two or three weeks before filming was due to begin. A variety broke the news that Meg Ryan was no longer going to be featuring in the movie. That depending which source you believe, she'd pulled out or she just walked away from movies for a bit. Or uh, Bottom line was she wasn't going to be starring in the film. Pre-production was well underway. They had to find a replacement and they had to find a replacement very, very quickly. Now, one person who wasn't logically thought of as a replacement at this point was Jodie Foster, because the roles that Jodie Foster was taking on were far more serious. She'd won Oscars for The Accused. She'd won an Oscar for The Silence of the Lambs. She was uh, making a film called Nell uh, uh, with Liam Neeson. And the, the, the movies that she was doing had more of a, well, they, they just had more of a serious edge to them. The idea that she would do a comedy, well, that wasn't really what she was known for. 
But she talked to Film Review in its August 1994 issue and she said actually she'd been looking for a comedy project but she'd been struggling to find one that she liked. In the case of Maverick, this one looked quite fun. She had a gap in her schedule to make it. I mean, she, one of the projects she was uh, going to consider making over the next year or two was one called Crisis in the Hot Zone that kind of fell apart uh, pretty late in the day. But in this particular case, Maverick arrived at an opportune moment. Foster had the opportunity to make it. She liked, she liked the script and she liked the the idea of working with the cast and director of it. Now, she didn't sign on blithely to it. I mean, she was developing her own directorial material at this point as well. She'd make her directorial debut with Little Man Tate, which is a really good little film if you can seek that one out. And so further changes were made to the screenplay late in the day just to, just to accommodate one or two things that she felt about the character of Annabelle in the movie. Going back, though, to that premiere report on her casting, well, there's a kind of depressing footnote in that, in that the, the only doubt over the casting, and I, I, I pass this information on and then I'm going to sigh at the end of it, was, I quote the article, that Donna was set to be worried if Foster could bring what the magazine called the swing vote to the, to the movie. And to quote the article, when Davey, the producer, borrowed the studio sampling of pictures from a, quote, hot photo session Foster had done, Donna acceded. Now, I should say that none of this is in Richard Donner's words, but it is said that he was the one who had some degree of doubt over her casting based on that level of appeal. So, I mean, that's all in print, and I'm now going to do the sighing bit. <sighs> At least, though, with all of these constituent parts in place, filming could begin on Maverick in August of 1993 with the rest of the cast in place, Graham Greene, uh, James Coburn, as I mentioned before, Alfred Molina uh, and Linda Hunt in the original ensemble as well. So the filming got underway. Where did it shoot? It's a good question. It was in California and on location in Arizona and Oregon. And in fact, they used the Lone Pine area of California, which been used for hundreds of Westerns dating right the way back to the 1920s. Foster, because she was such a late addition to the cast, well, she ended up coming a little bit late to the movie as well. She had other commitments that she needed to fulfil. So she came onto set when filming had been going for 10 days already. And she was surprised at just how happy the place was. Now, at the heart of the film is a card game. I don't think I'm going heavily spoilery there. And it's uh, the, the card game takes place on a boat called the Lauren Bell, which is partly named after Lauren Shula Donner, Richard Donner's wife and producer of the movie. And this was a sizable craft and they knew that they couldn't fake it. Now, Maverick is not a heavy special effects movie, you'll be surprised to hear. But there is a lot of physicality to it. And that was the challenge on this one, that the, the film was going to cost. In, I mean, the budget had gone up. It was a rich going to be around the 40 million mark but as more and more stars and Richard Donner was classed as a star as well here were added to it the price was edging towards 70 75 million dollars now that I mean to a degree that was no matter to Warner Brothers because The Fugitive had come out earlier that summer and had gone bananas and in fact The Fugitive the following year would get a Best Picture Oscar nomination to go to its huge box office returns so there wasn't an awful lot of doubt about bringing us about spending so much money on a big TV show coming to the big screen but some of that money went on a, a stern wheel tugboat I didn't know what one of those was well I didn't know what it was called but that instead of building one of those they borrowed it from the Oregon Maritime Museum and that's what you see in the film that the old adage of you don't film on water. Well, there was a little bit of that that they had to do in this. Now, Foster's brilliant performance, brilliant performance as Annabelle. I mean, it's, as a comedy performance, I just think it's terrific. Um, incorporated a moment of clumsiness that was duly built into the character that the first sequence that she shot, her character is basically falls out of a stagecoach. And the idea originally was that Maverick was supposed to help her out of the coach. Uh, but it was an accidental comedic moment that just brought a bit of clumsiness to Annabelle. And Richard Donner loved it. And that duly made the final. I mean, that Julie made the final cut of the film, but he also changed that character while they were filming. There's a moment towards the end as well where James Garner is addressing the crowd of gamblers on the boat where he just drops his gun. And that wasn't scripted either. That was just a, a, an accidental mess up. And again, Donna just thought that's great because Garner just carried on acting. He just didn't stop. And that moment gets incorporated into the movie too. 
Linda Hunt, meanwhile, well, she came in to take on a, a role that was called The Magician. And William Goldman talks about this in his book, Five Screenplays. And I mean, I'll come to it a little bit more when we do the post-production bit. But she was on set and filmed quite a sizable role in this. One that has involved uh, writer Gary Ross, who will go on to direct things like The Hunger Games and Seabiscuit. Um, Pleasantville as well. What a film that is. Um, he came in and did some rewrite work specifically for that character. And as it turned out, that rewrite work would not be used in the end for reasons I will come to. However, while they were filming the movie, they brought in lots of little references to things like the original Maverick TV show. There's lots of little um, Easter eggs for Lethal Weapon fans as well in the movie. Not least a fairly prominent cameo that I don't want to sport if you've not seen the film. They also brought in, because they needed a load of extras then for the gamblers at the end of the film, they brought in lots of stars of old Western TV shows to, to come in and fill those tables out. It's a trick that Robert Zemeckis used in Back to the Future Part 3. Um, the, the sequences with Marty McFly in the saloon, it's just like in the background of that, are a load of old performers from Western movies. Donna and Gibson sets also, I mean, it's pretty well known that they're not short on improvisation, even when the script was from such a legendary scribe as William Goldman. And so there was space given for playing around, space to improvise, and it was generally said to be a pretty happy shoot, this one. There were inevitable crew T-shirts. I mean, that seems to be de rigueur, really, for big Hollywood productions at the moment. And in fact, going back to that premiere issue, June 1994 issue, um, page 48 of that, they do have a list of some of the, a crew T-shirts that listed the things that have been overheard on the Maverick set. And um, it's a top 10 list, including things like who's not ready. I want names. Um, I don't want to hear your life story. What are you? Uh, why are you looking at your watch? Are you a producer? And there's a lot of leg pulling between the creators on this one but filming would wrap up um, pretty much on schedule I mean Donna's set Donna shoots rarely went over on schedule in December 1993 the release date had been targeted for May of 1994 so it's going to be quite a tight post-production turnaround on this one but conversely unlike the biggest film say of 1993 there were no dinosaurs in Maverick there wasn't going to be much in the way of visual effects it was a case of treat it almost like a comedy road movie and edit it that way and as as a result of that, if you're making a comedy movie, you don't want it to go on for too long. Into post-production, the first cut of the film went on for too long. In fact, the first cut of the film that, that, Donna, that Donna screened and took a look at was two and a half hours long. And he talked about this uh, in that issue of film review, I was talking, that August 1994 issue I was just talking about before. And this is where the Linda Hunt sequence was cut out of the movie. Now, it, I, I should note before I just get to this, that Randy Newman was up against the clock to do the score for the movie, that he, he thought the schedule was quite tight, but nonetheless, he went ahead and did it. But... The Linda Hunt sequence. Well, Donna explained that Hunt played a magician who saves Maverick from a hangman's noose. Now, we see the hangman's noose at the start of the film and that she would then nurse him back to health and give him the money he needs to enter the poker competition in the tournament. And this was a character that was writ large throughout the film. Unfortunately, what it meant was the movie was front loaded with around half an hour of build up to the introduction of Maverick and to get him to the point where we see him at the start of the movie we ultimately get. And the feeling was that it's got to come down to around a two hour movie. If it's going to be a comedy, it's got to be at that length. In fact, it would come in at 127 minutes with credits. But nonetheless, it had to come down quite a lot. And Donna and Gibson just had had a look at it and just thought that that opening has got to go. And they excised the entire character and the entire sequence and a lot of the backstory of Brett Maverick that we see in the movie. And Donna said it was an awkward conversation with Linda Hunt and he rang her up to tell her, but she was an absolute pro about it. But what that meant is because they were cutting out a character who'd set up who'd set up the the arc, really, that we see for Brett Maverick, there was going to be some reshoot work needed and some more stuff written in to cover, now all of a sudden, the gaps that were appearing in the narrative of the film. And so that reshoot work took place in the middle of March 1994. So that's what, just about two months before the release of the film. Donna also decided to bring in the voiceover that we get in the movie. I don't think we're going full Blade Runner with a controversial voiceover edition there 
but that was added late in the day as well. And so the post-production just, just, just ran it a little bit more to the line than had been originally planned. Now, it was going into a competitive landscape as well, that the, the, the Western Stampede was fully underway, that film, the films that were either just being released or were on the verge of being released at this point were Knights of Tombstone, Bad Girls, Wire Earp, The Cowboy Way, Woody Harrelson in that one, remember that? Uh, the Quick and the Dead, which I've covered before on this podcast. And in fact, this was the summer that Warner Brothers gambled on two big blockbuster westerns because it gave Kevin Costner and Lawrence Kasdan some $60-$70 million to make their three-hour Wire Earp movie, which I'll come to another time on this podcast. But basically, it's Summer Slate. The headline of it was two big Westerns going head-to-head, pretty much unheard of for a Western just a few years ago to be released in high summer at the box office in the US. And here's one studio just putting two of them. The, the film then, I mean, it was released in the US in May 1994 and it opened to really, really charming reviews. Um, I, I, I mean, revisiting the film now, it, it's a very funny, very easy to watch movie. And whilst people weren't calling it an outright classic, it was felt like this is just a very, very fun action comedy and a really pretty much perfect star driven um, summer blockbuster film that, in fact, Richard Donner would talk to the Chicago Tribune where he said, these reviews, it should happen to me for the rest of my life he's talked several times about how he doesn't like reviews he the, the initial response to his films he just tries to hide away a little bit but this was pretty much as good as he'd got for quite a while and the audience well the audience responded too that the film opened in the US with a box office gross of 17.2 million dollars in its opening weekend effectively kicking off that year's blockbuster movie season. The other films around at that point were the only other new opener was even Cowgirls Get the Blues, which had been given a, a limited release. That was down in 11th place. Knocked off the top of the chart was The Crow. Also around was When a Man Loves a Woman, ironically co-starring Meg Ryan, that one. Uh, Spike Lee's Crooklyn was at four. Four Wellings and Funeral was still in the top five after nearly three months on release in the US. But look what else was in the top ten. Three Ninjas Kick Back, Crikey, No Escape, which is the prison movie starring Ray Liotta, directed by Martin Campbell, whose next film would be Goldeneye. And there was Martin Lawrence, You So Crazy. That was up there as well. Maverick was off to a good start. And in fact, I mean, the week after, the Flintstones and Beverly Hills Cop 3 would come along. And so it was, those were the two big well, the, the two big Hollywood TV adaptations of that particular summer. The Flintstones opened to more money, actually, but then it was playing to a broader market, opened to nearly 30 million. And I mean, it went on to take 130 million in the US. Maverick didn't do quite that level of money. It did 100 million in the US in the end for an overall box office take of 183 million. But... In 1994, that was good money. Well, it's certainly not in the modern era where that might be a disappointment. Films can make half a billion dollars and it's just, oh, that's a disappointment. Um, in the case of Mavericks, just like, yes, that that that's a result. Happy with that. Um, to the point where the, the questions by the time it got to its UK release, which followed a, a month or two down the line, the questions when the stars and creatives came round for the press junket era is, well, are you going to do a sequel? And Gibson was just like, you'd be nuts not to franchise this movie. Jodie Foster was up for the idea of Maverick 2. Richard Donner was interested in Maverick 2. Um, Gibson had to go off and do another film he was going to direct first, one called Braveheart. Wonder how that would end up. And But... For, for whatever reason, it, it never it never happened. There was not another Maverick film, in spite of the interest in it happening. There was another Lethal Weapon movie that came together quite quickly. I covered that a long, long time ago on this podcast. I might come back to that uh, again at some point. But that was it. The, the, the door slowly closed on Maverick 2. It didn't close on the friendship between Foster and Mel Gibson. They remained friendly. Now, Mel Gibson, um, since the since his, uh, his star was so high in the 1990s, it's come crashing down as a result of serious well, serious accusations over his behaviour and his addictions and the way that he treats people. Those have been very well documented, documented and it would be remiss of me not to mention those. Foster would, uh, in fact, Foster would direct Mel Gibson in a film called The Beaver that came out in 2011, which is the first major re release featuring Gibson, really, that came out after those uh, allegations accusations and audio clips uh, came out online. 
In terms of Richard Donner and Mel Gibson, they would do Lethal Weapon 4, as I've just mentioned. They would do Conspiracy Theory as well. Um, Foster and Gibson haven't worked together again apart from that one time. And the Western, well, that long list of Westerns that I mentioned, they would slowly trickle at the box office and none of them really would have the box office punch that the studios wanted. Perhaps that's one of the reasons the light extinguished on Maverick 2. It still feels like a, a, a bit of a bolt from nowhere. We got Maverick 1 in the first place. It's really, I still think it's a, it's a film that really stands up. Uh, it stands up because it's not loaded with computer effects and so there's something of a timeless quality about it. Plus, it's funny. Which brings me to the halfway point of this latest episode of Film Stories. Um, and so I just, just one or two requests and one or two plugs, if that's OK. First of all, I'm a fully independent producer. I am one person who sits in a room and babbles into a microphone. I don't have a big company behind me or anything like that. As such, I, I'm just reliant on your word of mouth and I'm reliant on just <laughs> you've got me here, basically, by spreading the word. Uh, if you can, therefore, ideally subscribe to this podcast podcast uh, at your podcast host of choice and ideally also leave huge a hugely positive review somewhere that kind of thing plays wonderful havoc with the algorithms to my advantage and I do hugely appreciate it there are other bits and bobs around the film stories project that are available too we're on patreon at patreon.com slash simon brew uh, if you want to support the work with the podcast and with our website and trying to give new writers a break uh, that's the place to go there also issue 25 of film stories magazine is now on sale. You can find that at store.filmstories.co.uk. Huge interview with Ben Wheatley, one of the highlights in that particular issue. And the Blu-ray, Maiden Blu-ray release uh, in the UK is going to be Sneakers, which I covered on last week's podcast. But a, a, a new Blu-ray is coming to the UK on June the 28th. You can find out more about that at store.filmstories.co.uk. All those plugs done. I'm going to move on to the second of the two films I'm talking about in this episode of Film Stories. This one's a much smaller indie film. I'll play you a clip and I'll pick up the story. The other side of this. We can't do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Why not? I've found someone to love in a way that feels right. Just a scoop of cream potatoes. Four peas. And as much ice cream as you'd like to eat. Could you get me a cup of coffee? Do you really want to be my secretary? Yes, I do. That then was a clip from 2002 Secretary, directed by Stephen Shaneberg, screenplay by Erin Cressida Wilson and starring James Spader and Maggie Gyllenhaal alongside Jeremy Davis and Leslie Ann Warren. Now, the story of this one, well, it goes back to the filmmaker, the director behind it, Stephen Shaneberg, who was in the 1990s. He was on the lookout for a new project because I've, I've seen two different release dates of this. I've seen 1996 and 1998, but he brought to the screen in one of years. I think it was 96. A film called Hit Me. Now this was a film based on a book called Jim Thompson called, uh, the book was called A Swell Looking Babe. And Shaneberg, even though he was in his 20s at the time, he'd optioned five of Thompson's books for around $5,000 a few years before. And this was before other films based on his books, things like After Dark My Sweet and The Grifters made it to the big screen. So he was pretty much ahead of the game there. Now, Shaneberg then built up his career, he built up his career doing bits of work with the likes of MTV. He shot commercials, he shot music videos, and he was a filmmaker on Hollywood's radar to a degree, on the outskirts of its radar. I mean, it's pretty well known that Hollywood was searching the likes of MTV for its directors in the, 1980, the late 80s and the 90s. But what he found was he was getting sent pretty much standard Hollywood comedy scripts, things in the vein of Animal House and stuff like that. That's not really what he wanted to make because, and there's a huge article in Premiere magazine in March 2002, which I've leaned on quite a lot in this, uh, for putting together the story for this particular one. And he said in that article that actually as a storyteller, he was interested in telling stories of sex and the trouble that it gets people into. But it wasn't immediately apparent how he could fashion that into a film. Didn't stop him putting the boot leather in, though, so to speak, visiting clubs. He interviewed fetishists and he interviewed those and met with those in the S&M scene. 
Now, separately, author Mary Gateskill had written a short story called Secretary. Now, this was just 12 pages long and it's very different from the film that we ultimately get. But this told of an S&M relationship between a male boss and his female secretary. And it was a consensual dominant man and a consensual submissive woman. And Schoenberg looked at that and he thought there's something in that. And he took an option on Mary Gateskill's short story. And this was in 1998. So we're still four years or so before we ultimately got to see the film. But as we're going to come to, there was a significant delay in the production of this one. So what he would do, he went on the lookout for a writer to turn it into a screenplay and he hired Erin Cressida Wilson to take the job on. And as he, I mean, he would explain in an interview with DVD Talk, he said, essentially, in the story, the young girl's experience with the lawyer is very damaging to her. And um, he said, one of the things I felt when I first read it is that this relationship doesn't have to go in that direction. And that direction is in some way the expected thing of a story to do with sadomasochism. And he said that sadomasochism, the expected cliche of it is that it's dark and scary and weird with leather and whips and chains and things that are scary and go bump in the night. And Schoenberg said, my feeling was it didn't have to be that way, that it could actually be a liberating experience for a young girl. Um, I think he meant young woman, but, you know, but let's move on. He so he, he looked at this as a, a short film and he put a short film together. I mean, there's a 22 minute version of Secretary, which I couldn't track down, but it was a feature that he wanted to make. And he, his eyes were opened again when Hit Me opened to very little fanfare that he put a lot of effort and a lot of time into making Hit Me. And it's a film about heist going wrong. But it had just a few weeks in cinemas before other films came along and took its screen space off him and the film pretty much disappeared from public consciousness and the, the fact that I mentioned the film hit me I would imagine most of us listening or waffling on this um, hadn't actually heard of it or seen it I certainly hadn't heard of it or seen it so what he thought was for his next film he's going to need to bring in some higher profile talent just to give the movie a better chance at sticking around and so with his, his attention now on bringing secretary to the big screen he he focused on that and as he told Premiere all distributors want to know is who's in the film. Now, distributors were, were sniffing around independent cinema. I mean, Steven Soderbergh's film Sex, Lies and Videotape, uh, which had gone on to be a commercial and award-winning success, had really changed the marketplace there. Tarantino had then come in as an indie filmmaker in the 90s and revolutionised it. But still, Schoenberg knew that it was going to be a challenge to attract actors to such a risky project. Nonetheless, he interested the investors of HitMe and they chipped in $2 million to get the project moving. And so out went the Hollywood casting call and uh, the casting call told potential actors that the film featured, quote, self-mutilation, sadomasochism, masturbation and a hunger strike. Imagine that hunger strike. Who would want to do that on screen? So... That went, that was circled around the Hollywood agents and, and well, St so Stephen Scheinberg's door was not being knocked down at this point. Now, it should, I should mention that uh, Scheinberg's producing partners in this were Andrew Feiberg and Amy Hobby of, uh, and, and they were brought in when, in fact, Feiberg told um, Bomb magazine, he said, we, we went through this process where I was the last person you came to and I read it and said, if you can make this film as funny and as endearing as I think it could be, I'm with you. And so they boarded as producers and they were all on a mission then to bring this to the screen. So they decided the logical lead for the film in the role of E. Edward Gray, who is the is the dominant in the film. And well, it had to be James Spader, didn't it? I mean, Michael Douglas was too expensive and that was just the cost of his jumpers, whereas Spader had, had made films where he'd he'd explored the edges of sex. I mean, he was he was the star of Sex, Lies and Videotape. And so there was a feeling that he wouldn't be averse to the material and a bit more bottom wriggling on the big screen. The offer went into Spader late in 1999 and in early 2000, Spader's, uh, January 2000 actually, James Spader's agent came back to them saying that, quote, he doesn't respond to the material. It was a no. There were a lot more no's to come. So other actors were sounded out. Michael Keaton, he said no. Aaron Eckhart, he said no. 
Aaron Eckhart again. He said no. Aaron Eckhart again. He said no. Ray Liotta. Well, he didn't say no at first. There was apparently a little bit of interest there. But then Liotta landed a high profile gig co-starring in Ridley Scott's adaptation of Hannibal, effectively the Silence of the Lambs sequel. And thus he called on making secretary. So then things were still looking problematic. So Sheinberg knew that if he didn't have a star name of sorts, he didn't really have a project here. Time was ticking on. And then the name of Robert Downey Jr. was raised. And this was at a time when Robert Downey Jr. was still in prison. Um, and so as a result, he wasn't going to be able to make a studio film when he was released because ensuring that film would be incredibly problematic. But he might be tempted to an indie production. However, the offer went into Downey Jr. and he decided to do the TV show Ali McBeal instead. He was out. Greg Kinnear, well, he was open to the project at one point, but wasn't said to be keen on auditioning for it. He was out. Vincent Donofrio, he was mooted, didn't come to anything. Stellan Skarsgård, he'd just broken through with Lars von Trier's Breaking the Waves, but he turned it down as well. And they, they were just getting nowhere. And in truth, they weren't having an awful lot of luck with the female lead in the film either. So many refused to meet the filmmakers for this one. But rejections came in from the likes of Reese Witherspoon, Kate Hudson, Claire Dane, Sarah Polly. Uh, Samantha Morton's agent apparently passed the script on to her client, but Morton turned it down. And so Shane Berg, for the female lead, at least, he turned his attention to auditioning people who were then unknown. Enter stage left Maggie Gyllenhaal. Now, Maggie Gyllenhaal was not really known at this point. In fact, if she was known for anything, she'd um, had a bit part in Donnie Darko uh, alongside her more uh, her then more famous brother, Jake, uh, younger brother, Jake. Her agent sent her the script, her rep sent her the script with a note on top that said you might be appalled. And that slightly appealed to Maggie Gyllenhaal, according to that uh, premiere report. So she went and she did an audition and Sheinberg was really impressed with the audition. But the only thing that stopped him hiring her at that point was bluntly, nobody knew who she was. And he was again looking down the barrel of having a film with unknowns that would just disappear. Now, by this stage, the whole casting process had been going on for just over a year and the cast still wasn't in place. So it got to January 2001 and the producers, Fireberg and Hobby, well, they, they were putting time and money in. They wanted the film to get going. The script was pretty much ready. So they asked Schoenberg to fly to Los Angeles and basically start putting pre-production bits and bobs together. If this was going to happen, they needed to get moving. So they did some location scouting work. There was a lot of preparation on the look of the office in the movie as well. That took a, a, an inordinate amount of time to just get the look of feel of that right. But in the midst of all of this, they'd had, what, nearly 30 rejections from name actors for the roles in the film. And it was in the end, Andrew Fireberg just said, why don't we just try James Spader one more time? Why don't we just go back to him? And so they went back to him. I mean, what at this stage did they have to lose apart from the entire film? But as it happened, what they discovered was Spader had turned the film down the, the first time round, not for reasons of the script, after all, but because reasons of money. Uh, it wasn't the material. He just needed he just needed to make a living. And so he met with them this time and finally they were getting somewhere. What's more, while while, discuss, while having discussions with Spader, the conversation of who's co-starring came in and he was shown the audition tape of Maggie Gyllenhaal, to which Spader said in premiere March 2002, he said, I think I would have quite a time spanking the hell out of her. So James Spader was interested in doing it. Could they broker a deal with him under the uh, with that two million dollar budget? And they did. But they ended up paying him four hundred thousand dollars for four weeks work on the film. Now, this was I mean, it's a lot of money to me, but this was tiny by Hollywood standards. He would get a slice of the film's takings as well as part of the deal. But even though this was minuscule in the scale of a Hollywood salary, the, the bottom line was the production couldn't actually afford it at that stage. And so it was always going to be a bit hand to mouth. And the future of the film was never entirely certain. Gyllenhaal was 
offered the co-starring role in the in the movie and this was her first lead role um, and she was thrilled to get it but also there were reservations she talked about this in a really interesting interview at chimera.co.uk that's chimera with a k and he said i had the script sent to me was immediately very moved by it it was a great script beautifully written and she said that the, the thing that sort of scared me when i first read it was less the sex or the things that i i would be doing in the movie but what the movie could ultimately be saying if it were put in the wrong hands he said she said said i think the script was obviously and without question trying to say something smart political transgressive and provocative but it was talking about such risky stuff if it fell off the fine line it was walking it would end up being a reactionary anti-feminist sex movie and so she said my real worry was about who was directing it and it took a little bit of convincing tonally there was the concern that this would end up being a little bit more porn than love story and in fact she sought the advice of her parents on this one her mum the writer Naomi Fona well she was a little more convinced than her dad her dad's the director Stephen Gyllenhaal um, Shane Berg was also presented at this point because Maggie Gyllenhaal did get a little bit cold feet on it at one point and was presented with an agreement by her representatives about what could or couldn't be shown in the film but knowing the script that was in front of him Shane Berg knew he couldn't really sign that deal that it, it, it just the, the film wouldn't be possible under the conditions that were set so Gyllenhaal thought about it and Julie signed up but this was um th this was a whole new world to her she would opt to fully commit to the role with virtually no restrictions in the end but she'd had long chats with Stephen Shainberg to get to that point to work out bluntly whether she could trust him and in the end she decided she could but they, they went through a month or so just before filming started where they worked on refining the character and getting it right. And Maggie Gyllenhaal would give an interview to the BBC where she said the thing that pushed me over the edge was that I asked him what he wanted the message of the movie to be and he said, listen Maggie, I don't know what I'm going to say. If I knew what I was trying to say, I wouldn't have to make it. I know what I want to explore though. And she said I was moved by that and I decided to do it. And finally, Secretary had its leads and it was ready to go before the camera in 2001. Now, it shot in the Los Angeles area. This was a very low budget production. The office space was designed to be bright and spacious. A real contradiction, again, they were going for from the cliche that the subject matter itself could be dark and difficult. Spader and Gyllenhaal got on very well. I mean, that was crucial as well, that there was trust there, genuine trust between the pair of them for the, uh, I mean, the, the, the talked about, and this was pushed heavily as well in the aftermath of the film's release, spanking sequence in the movie. The producer got to the point where they offered a protective pad for Gyllenhaal, which she opted against because she really wanted to get into the role properly. But also, crucially, Spader and Gyllenhaal were seeing this film the same way, something more of an old-fashioned love story than, any, than anything overtly kinky or anything like that. Sheinberg too was very careful in the end what to show and what not to show and he decided he was going to let sound do a lot of the work in the film but it was still I mean, there's no getting around the fact it was still the spanking scene in the movie that finally secured the movie the rest of the finance it needed to get it finished so Hollywood after all is still Hollywood once once they'd had their eyes on that they duly coughed up the rest of the cash. There was one key sequence in the movie, I think this is a pretty well-known story, where they got the permits to film in a park for a certain sequence in the film that I'm not going to spoil, but they got the permits for the wrong park. And because this was an indie film, because they had a tight schedule, because they had uh, James Spader for four weeks and that was the lot, they had to go a bit gorilla with that one, gorilla with a U, and it was it was the old-fashioned, let's distract the local cops and, and go and get the footage while we can and then peg it, which is basically, from the sounds of it, what they decided to do. The film was then put together. Shaneberg came up with these cuts of 111 minutes with credits in the end. And this time the movie was getting noticed. For a start, it was accepted into competition at the Sundance Film Festival in 2002. And the film would get its, its premiere on January the 11th, 2002. It took four or five years to get to this point. And it would go on to pick up the special jury prize at Sundance as well. In fact, awards won. Maggie Gyllenhaal will go on to get a Golden Globe nomination for her performance in this one. But Shainberg would talk to DVD talk about the reaction to the movie. He says that audience reaction at Sundance was overwhelmingly positive. 
bar. During the course of Sundance, nobody bought the film. He said, we went to the awards ceremony terrified, thinking this is a disaster. Then we won the special jury prize. That turned some heads and ultimately Lionsgate picked it up. It wasn't off the back of the initially strong reviews and the audience reaction. It's the fact that it won a prize at Sundance. And presumably for Lionsgate, which is a very different company then, that just gave it some collateral it could sell the film with. And he said, I think what turned the audience and what turned the distributors and ultimately what turned the general public, uh, because the movie did for four to five million at the box office uh, and as a film there was only in 150 screens at its at its widest and it was that award that was the turning point he says it got out into the world uh, that this wasn't something creepy or ugly or unappealing and the legitimacy bestowed on it by that jury prize was pivotal to the eventual success of secretary in fact Maggie, going back to that interview maggie gyllenhaal did with chimera.co.uk she said i was surprised how little controversy there was and how I didn't really get a chance to fight for the movie like I hoped I was going to get because she said I'd made it a priority to talk about the movie politically she said sometimes you'll meet someone who'll go so what was it like to be spanked by James Spader couldn't tell you the answer to that myself um, but she said that, that they would really be looking at it just like it, like just a sex movie and it's a total misreading of it it's not what the movie's about but that's really rare too and she said most people really get it Lionsgate then would schedule the film for a cinema release in the US in September of 2002. I think it was Tartan who picked it up here in the UK. We wouldn't get it till 2003 over here. That cinema release, well, it came out on September the 20th. And I'm just looking at the weekend chart for that week of release. It opened in 31st place, but only on 11 screens with a screen average of $16,500 a screen. The only film above it on screen average terms in the chart that week was the opening of Spirited Away, the wonderful Studio Ghibli masterpiece. The other movies, just by way of contrast, were what I mean, topping the chart that week was Barbershop. Um, the big new releases were The Banger Sisters, Ballistic X versus Savage. You remember that? The Four Feathers and Trapped uh, was out there as well. But so the thing with Secretary is it hung around that in the I mean, in, releasing independent films is obviously a very different beast in that you try and build the screen count up over a number of weeks. You try and get some word of mouth going. And it turned out Lionsgate was pretty good at that with Secretary. By week three, it was in the top 20. It, it had made one point two million dollars by that point. And it hung around in the chart for a, a good little while as well. I mean, it was if we go forward just like a couple of weeks more, if we go to say the end of October in 2002. Well, Secretary's in 29th place then. By then he's got 2.7 million. He's still bringing in tiny amounts of money by the context of some of the films I've talked about in this podcast, but not bad really for a movie that ultimately costs $4 million to make. It would go on to make just over $9 million worldwide at the box office and it would be a small but notable uh, DVD hit as well. And it's endured as well that there's a lot of discussion that still carries on with regard Secretary and it's it's a much liked film. Uh, not least because it could have been a really very different one but the way Steven Sheinberg went about it, well, it, I think it was appreciated and much liked, not least by those within the community that it, it represents. Now, Sheinberg would reunite with Aaron Cresta Wilson for his next film, 2006's Fur. That would actually feature Robert Downey Jr. But since then, he's only had one feature credit to his name as a director. That would be 2016's Rupture. But his battle to make secretary, well, it, it, quite a journey and a half to get that far. And I think the end result, uh, I, I said right at the start of this, that this is a podcast about people who push the boulder uphill and get very, very difficult projects made sometimes. I think you can safely say, Say that Steve, for Stephen Sheinberg to get secretary through the system and to get it an audience, there's no small feat at all. Which brings me to the end of this latest episode of Film Stories. As always, thank you so much for your eardrums and thank you for listening. You can get more of my waffling on Twitter at Simon Brew. You can get more from the entire Film Stories project at Film Stories Pod. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash film stories online. You can find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash film stories. The online store with loads of our magazines and our Blu-ray of sneakers. I mentioned that. That's store.filmstories.co.uk and every weekday we update filmstories.co.uk 
UK with features, with news, with reviews, with movie mayhem, really. And I, I thank you hugely for supporting any part of the Film Stories project. Um, I've also got a live show coming up on June the 23rd, 2021 in Birmingham at the Midlands Arts Centre. If you want your if you want a live dose of movie waffling, I'll be there on that date. You can find more on that on the website, filmstories.co.uk. But I'm going to shut up now. As always, I've waffled on too long. I thank you for your time. I thank you for your eardrums. And I'll be back soon with another bunch of film stories. You all stay safe. Take care. Bye bye.